The views, opinions, and content of the show hosts and their guests appearing on America's Web Radio are their own and do not necessarily reflect those of the station. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. You're listening to America's Web Radio. It's time now for the Doctor's Lounge Show with Dr. Scott Barber. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Doctor's Lounge. I'm Dr. Scott Barber, and you're listening to me on America's Web Radio. Welcome to the show, everybody. Today we're going to have a conversation about an important topic these days, which is basically beware of the experts. Now, when I first started doing this show uh, several years ago now, we started basically just trying to talk to you about the virtues of free market health care and to caution you about the dangers of a one-size-fits-all top-down, government-run, socialized medicine system. And I felt compelled to sort of compare and contrast the two types of systems, believing that proponents of each one truly wanted to help people. And now it just has become so ridiculous. Socialized medicine demonstrably is a failure everywhere it's tried, whether it be Canada or the United Kingdom or even socialized medicine systems that we have in this own, in our own country, like the VA. But our entire healthcare system has really collapsed before my very eyes. I started medical school in 1992. So 31 years ago, I got my first real exposure to the inside of medicine. We started our training in VA hospitals, which were government-run entities, and they were absolutely the worst places you could ever imagine on the planet. The the lack of common sense is absolutely unbelievable, and over the years, I've gotten more and more cynical and more and more frustrated with the bureaucracy of medicine and, uh, frankly, the corruption within the healthcare system. There's a lot of med- there's a lot of money to be made in healthcare. It's a valuable commodity. Just about every single one of us on the planet needs healthcare. And governments have realized long ago, Plato discussed it, that a great way to control a population is through their healthcare. And so that's the reason really is that the government wants to take control of our healthcare system is because they want to control the money. There's a lot of wealth in it when you can confiscate that wealth from the taxpayers and distribute it to your friends. Uh, it's a very powerful tool. It's also a massive way to control populations. And we saw that during the COVID epidemic. And the government used medicine and their control through medicine to to run the country trillions of dollars were diverted to COVID relief. You know, we saw Congress get together. We got another trillion dollars we're spending on COVID. Nobody was monitoring where that money went, who it went to. People just were fearful at the time and the government just sort of just did it. And you know, none of us know where that money went. Uh, they used the fear uh, of the COVID virus to implement lockdowns had tremendous impact on our voting systems with a mass mail-in balloting, which created a lot of questions in the last couple of elections. And so we can see where healthcare is incredibly 
an incredibly powerful tool the government uses to control wealth and to control power and to manipulate the population. Now, to get more on a granular level, I had an experience uh, recently that just really frustrated me beyond belief. Now, uh, I, I'm always taking care of people, uh, whether it be on the weekends or after hours. I'm constantly having friends and friends of friends contact me about medical issues that they need addressed. And, you know, I recently went over to somebody's house. They actually turned out they lived in my neighborhood and they wanted my my opinion about a foot issue with uh, this person's wife. So I drove over, I knocked on the door and they were stunned. They were like, oh my goodness, I can't believe you came to our house and this is such a nice thing you do. And man, it's just, I can't believe you would put this effort into it. And it's really... I wasn't doing anything special. This is just who I am. It was what I was born to be. And I love taking care of people and it's not work for me. And I, and I'm totally blessed to be in that position. And so the reason that I bring this up is that as I started my medical career, uh, obviously I have to make money to pay for my house and pay for my kids' education and, you know, live. Uh, and I do medicine to do that, but I do a lot. I don't really, uh, focus on getting paid for everything I do in healthcare. I sort of just take care of people and then I have a business, uh, where I, you know, can make a living. But I would do this for free. I absolutely love doing it. And so over the years, I used to take, you know, I've always taken Medicare, Medicaid. And when I first started in, in private practice over 20 years ago, my colleagues and I would talk about the fact that we lose money uh, taking care of Medicare and Medicaid patients. The amount of resources that we have to spend to implement the care is not covered by the paltry amount of money that the government reimburses you. And this is, in my opinion, by design to drive healthcare providers out of business and into a position where they have to become employed by a hospital system or a government entity. Uh, and, uh, you know, we used to look at Medicare and Medicaid patients are our duty to society. And so even though Doctors were losing money on it. We would continue to take care of them. And then several years ago, I started uh, or I elected to stop uh, accepting Medicare and Medicaid patients. Now, I still see them from time to time. They, you know, when I cover my emergency room uh, patients, I'll have Medicare and Medicaid patients. And I just take them to my surgery center and I treat them for free. Uh, it's it's my pleasure to take care of them, and I just simply cannot deal with the bureaucracy. For example, if I do an operation on a Medicare patient and they need crutches after the surgery, the, the bureaucracy of Medicare will force me to be on the phone for an hour just to get the the crutches dispensed. I mean, by the time I'm able to get these things done, my patients are already having complications from the procedure I'd done because they couldn't get it in a timely fashion. And with my patient volume, I just simply don't have the time to be on the phone with Medicare for an hour to get crutches dispensed to these patients. And so I basically uh, elected to stop taking Medicare. And again, it's not for the money issue. It's because the bureaucracy won't allow me to adequately take care of these patients. Now, I explain that I do take care of Medicare and Medicaid-type patients and governmental patients. They come in through the emergency room when I'm on call, and so I care for them. And I also have my own patients that were not on Medicare when I first started taking care of them, and then they've aged to the point where now they are on Medicare, and so I take care of those patients as well. 
And I had an experience recently where a friend of mine's mother needed a hip replacement. And so, you know, he obviously wanted me to do it. Or maybe that's not so obvious, but he wanted me to do it, and I was happy to do it. And so I elected to take her to the hospital so that we could do the procedure at the hospital. Her Medicare benefits would cover the anesthesiologist there and the hospital stay and all that. I typically do these procedures at my own surgery center where I control the anesthesia and I control you know, basically all of the parameters for the surgical procedure, and I've learned a lot doing that. When I used to operate primarily at a hospital or at an outside facility, I would commonly say to the anesthesiologist, I need hypotensive anesthesia. It's a very common uh, technique where the anesthesiologist administers medication to the patient, keeping their blood pressure low. And so when you're performing the operation, you tend not to lose as much blood because the blood pressure is lower. And you know, over the decades of doing this, I would say I need hypotensive anesthesia and I need relaxation. The anesthesiologist can give the patients uh, neuromuscular blockers to relax the muscles. It makes it easier for me to expose the joint and perform the operation. And so over the years, over the decades, I would say to anesthesia, I need maximum relaxation and I need hypotensive anesthesia. And I would assume they were doing it and I would have bleeding during the case. And, you know, I would, I would have, uh, a relaxation, so I thought. Then I got my own surgery center where I started being in control of everything. And what I noticed was when I said hypotensive anesthesia and max relaxation, I mean, I'm losing no blood now because we actually are doing hypotensive anesthesia. And the point I'm trying to make here is a lot of times anesthesiologists where I'm working at a, at a hospital or an outside facility will just kind of say, oh yeah, I'll take care of you, but they're really not doing it. And so the quality of the care that I'm getting is not as good. And it never became apparent to me until I had my own place. And I could really contrast how, man, I do, I've, I did bilateral total hips on somebody and I lost like 150 cc's, which is less than half of what I would lose on a single hip at the hospital. And so the point I'm trying to make is I have seen the deterioration of medicine and I've been able to compare and contrast the socialized aspects of medicine compared to the free market aspects. And free market aspects involve the delivery of customer service. And customer service is incredibly difficult, right? Uh, there's a f- phrase people are uh, used to hearing uh, that the customer is always right. And, and that is true. When you're running a business, the customer is always right. But sometimes your customers can be crazy. They can be awfully demanding and and it can be very difficult to meet their needs. In fact, I once had a patient who uh, came in and she would complain about my office being dirty, about my MRI tech not being well-dressed, and about there not being any credentials up on the building. Well, <clears throat> my, uh, or the, my MRI tech at the time was wearing a suit because it was the day he was being interviewed. So I don't know how much better dressed he could have been. My office has nothing but every square inch of the walls is covered with memorabilia of uh, famous and prominent people that I've taken care of and all of my credentials, which are a lot uh, over the decades. That's all up on the wall. So that didn't seem to make sense. And then when I would sit down and talk to her about her problem, she would sort of describe that when she was doing an ultra marathon, that when she got to mile 98, she was 97% recovered. And I'm thinking to myself, like, and the, you know, the woman was like, uh, 60 years old. And so 
a little bit of uh, unrealistic expectations about things, but what she got for her complaints was seeing me every single time and me sitting there uh, doing my best job to try and deliver her the care that she wanted. And the point I'm trying to make is delivery of customer service is difficult. Now, you take that over to a socialized medicine setting, they couldn't care less about customer service because there are no consequences for it. And that's really the big problem with socialized medicine, government bureaucracies running things, is there's no discipline of failure. When the government fails at something, uh, these people get promoted. They don't lose their jobs. They get promoted. And, and people are familiar with the phrase maybe of they fail up. Right. You do a terrible job at one level and then you just get promoted to the next level and you just get to be in charge. You never have any consequences for failure. You do something, you have an epic fail and nothing ever happens. We just taxpayers pay more money and we just get more of the same. And so I had this experience where I took care of my friend's mom. I went to the hospital to do the hip replacement and it was unbearable. Now, I do these procedures all the time. A lot of patients will come to my surgery center. We have uh, recovery suites that will keep them overnight usually. Some of my patients go home. We manage their pain. We manage their ice and their physical therapy, getting them up out of bed. And I never hear anything but, wow, my care was so great. That's what I'm used to hearing all the time. Never have an issue. Pain control not an issue because we're on top of it. So I take care of this patient's mother. We do the operation and it's perfect. I mean, you know, I'm, I've been doing this for a long time and, and I was done with the case and I was like, everything is absolutely perfect. And, you know, I was joking <clears throat> with my friend that real pressure is when you're doing a procedure on somebody's mom, right? If it doesn't come out perfectly, you're going to hear about it. And so this one came out perfectly I went to go see her in recovery, and because of the block I put in and the medicine I put in, she woke up and she was like, oh, I feel great. It was all hugs and kisses. I'm so happy with you. And I left to go back to my surgery center to finish my day, and I'm thinking to myself, another success. Boy, was I wrong about that. That night, she started having excruciating pain, and they weren't coming to the room to get her out of bed to go to the bathroom, and I'm getting calls from my friend, what's going on? And I'm calling over to the hospital like, what is the big deal here, man? Give her some pain medicine. And, you know, I'm hearing stories from the patient about they would, you know, that the nurse wouldn't come in for long periods of time. And, you know, this is a failure of care because when somebody's having a painful situation, you have to keep that pain away by giving them their pain medicine on a regular basis. If you keep that pain away, people can stay comfortable. But if you allow that pain to come back full force, it's very difficult to take enough medicine to get that pain back uh, under control. And so losing control of someone's pain is a big deal in healthcare. And then on top of that, you know, you don't have the nurses helping getting out of bed. Now, just to, 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 you know, you need to go to the bathroom. You need to get out of bed. You need things. And you're dependent on the nurses in the hospital, and they're simply not doing the job anymore. And I'll explain. Many years ago when I was a kid, my mom was a nurse. And my mom went to a four-year institution. Now a lot of nursing schools are two years. Actually, I think most of them are probably two-year programs. My mother went to a four-year program at Mass General, and she used to brag about it all the time. And 
I think my mom was a pretty good nurse. She was a trauma nurse, and she used to come home over the years when I was a kid, and she would complain about how uh, they would hire uh, nurses that were less and less capable. And what was going on is, you know, this is even before my time, as medicine started becoming more and more dominated by government, and there was less and less free market there. One of the ways that they would try and cut costs was by getting nursing that was less trained. And so what happened is they would hire nurses that weren't well trained. And my mom would be frustrated because these nurses wouldn't know how to do anything on the floors. And so what would happen is the doctors would recognize the nurses that don't know how to do anything. And then they would go to people like my mother that they knew were capable. And so my mom would be frustrated in the sense that her reward for being one of the better nurses was that she got to do all the work and that these nurses that didn't know how to do anything, you know, kind of didn't, they're, they're hanging out and they're getting paid the same as my mother. And she was very frustrated about it. My brothers and I used to talk about how, man, mom comes home and she's, you know, complaining all the time about this. And it was a real pain. Now, fast forward to when I become a doctor and I start doing the exact same thing. Cause 20 years ago, I used to be able to sit with the nurses in the hospital and we would have a game plan for a patient. I would say, hey, listen, this patient has had longstanding arthritis in a joint. They've been taking narcotic medication for a while and so they have some tolerance to the medicine. And so what we're going to need to do is we're going to need to give this kind of medicine. I would talk to them about the fact that I finished their surgery at 9 a.m. and I put a great block in there and that usually lasts about eight hours. But at eight hours, that medicine's going to start wearing off. So why don't you come in at about seven hours to see how they're feeling and you can start adjusting their medicine. And if this doesn't work because they've built up a tolerance to it, we can transition to this other medicine. And we had this whole strategy for managing a patient's care and it worked great. But then as time went on, the government bureaucracy started taking over and they started making rules about, you know, you can't have these conversations with nurses and nurses aren't allowed to do anything without the direct orders from doctors. And then nurses would come to me and say, well, I'm not going to do what you're asking me to do. You have to put the orders in the in the computer. And I'd be saying, like, how am I going to put the orders in the computer when I don't know what's going to happen seven hours from now? And it just got to be frustrating. And the, the nurses, then as time went on, nurses, uh, because this is what human beings do, as they were good at their job and other nurses were not good at their job, doctors go to the good nurses and say, hey, I want you to take care of all of my problems. And they're sitting there going, so my reward for being good is I get to do all the work. So then those nurses would start being like, you know what, I don't know how to do it either. And I can't do it either. And so what you've had now is this this uh, repopulation of this quality, caring nursing population with this sort of bureaucracy of incapable people. And now I'm not even joking. When I call a hospital sometimes, I can't even get a nurse to make an NPO order. All I want to do is say, don't feed my patient. And a lot of times they don't speak very good English. Uh, they, they don't, you know, they're not very well trained and they can't understand. I'm thinking to myself, man, I'm just trying to make my patient NPO, nothing per us, nothing to eat after midnight. And I can't do it. Like I've seen the collapse in my own lifetime and now it's happened. It's happened to doctors too. Do you understand? Like the doctors make a calculation. Like when I was a young man, I said to myself, what do I want to be in this world? I want to be a doctor. Why? Well, for me, I remember my calculation was 
I, I like helping people and I want to do it. I'm, I, I'm interested in medicine and human physiology and the way the body works. So doing a job that's challenging, that allows me to do things that interest me. Um, I like the idea of working with my hands. I like the idea of being uh, mobile. You know, the idea of me sitting at a cubicle or at a desk didn't appeal to me. I wanted to be, you know, out on the floors in the hospital in the operating room in the clinic doing different things. And so it appealed to me. But one of the other calculations I made was how much money am I going to make, right? If I'm going to, you know, put in 13 years of my life into training, making no money, getting no 401k, I want to be able to make a certain return on my investment. Money wasn't the only thing, but it was definitely a calculation. And now what's happened over the decades is you have these kids that are making these calculations and they're saying, wait a second, I got to go train for 13 years to be an orthopedic surgeon. I got to, I got to go into hundreds of thousands of dollars of debt and I'm going to be making what? And I'm going to be a government bureaucrat. And so what's happening is good people are just not going into medicine. You throw on top of that, our academic institutions are selecting out for people that will be good socialized medicine employees. This is a fact and it's been going on forever. And now the doctors that come out are much less capable. They're much less uh, able to think in terms of independent thought. And so you fast forward to me doing this uh, hip replacement on my friend's mom. We had to spring her from the hospital. I mean, it just got to the point where I was like, dude, just go get her out of there. They won't give her her medicine. They won't help her with physical therapy. They're not getting her out of bed. Just bring her home. And that way she has her medical, her medicine right there and we can start administering it in a timely fashion, you know, by her family who cares about her. It's not rocket science. It's like, has it been four hours? Good. Open it. It says on the bottle, two pills. I mean, it's not rocket science here. And so we got her out of the hospital and we got her into rehab. And I'm thinking to myself, all right, good. We got her in the rehab facility. She's out of this. Um, she's out of this hospital. And so it was a nightmare. I'm not even doing it justice by explaining to you just the horrible care. And it's not this particular hospital. This is all of them now. And so he gets to, he gets her to the rehab facility. And then I get a call from him on the weekend at night. And he says, listen, man, my mom's freaking out. She's, she's got a, the doctor came in. And uh, he's got a swollen, she said he's got a swollen leg and she wanted to, he told her she's getting a clot, right? And she says her doctor is a clown. Guy doesn't like me. Apparently he knows who I am. So he's telling this patient that I'm a loser. Do you believe this stuff? A professional. So he calls me and I'm like, all right, well, let me just go check on her. So I go and I look at her and she's not having a clot. Okay. She's got normal swelling, which is very little. I mean, she's having like what you would call an amazing recovery. The woman's pretty old and she's doing incredibly well. I know this because it's what I do for a living. So I see this all the time and I'm starting to get a little frustrated. I go, I check the notes and it turns out the, the standard of care for DVT prophylaxis. So when anybody has a joint replacement, we need to protect them from, from developing clots because people who undergo joint replacements have uh, increased risk for the development of clots. These clots usually form in the legs, and when they form, they can cause legs to swell a lot, and sometimes those clots can break off, go to your lungs, and cause a thing called a pulmonary embolism, and they can even kill you. So obviously, we want to prevent that, and the way that we do it is by giving them two baby aspirin every day for a month. 
That is the standard of care. It's not what I invented. I'm following the standard of care. So this clown of a doctor who's telling my patient, you've got to, is not an orthopedic surgeon. He's, you know, moonlighting or whatever at a rehab facility. And, uh, he's telling my patient that I'm a clown. I'm a loser that she's developing a clot and that he was going to switch and he switched her medicine. So he switched her medicine from aspirin to Eliquis. Eliquis. Okay. Now, Eliquis is not malpractice to give it. I mean, it's, you could do it, but it's expensive. And I want you to see what's going on here, right? You got a facility that's being run by a guy on a Medicare patient and Medicare covers Eliquis. And I want to say Eliquis is something like $60 a pill. All right. So $60 a pill versus a baby aspirin, right? Which is, you know, a cent. Okay. So he's taking it from the standard of care medicine without my permission. My orders to the rehab facility are aspirin, two baby aspirin twice a day, right? He changes it. He tells her she's having a clot in her leg is swollen. Not true. She's having a completely normal exam. So the guy's like freaking my patient out for no reason. And then on top of that, he's telling the patient that I'm a loser and a clown. And it turns out I've worked with this person somewhere and he thinks I'm a trumper. That's what he said. He's a trumper. So I'm like, are you freaking kidding me? You're freaking my patient out because you think my politics are different than yours? Like, this is so out of the realm of professionalism. It's so out of the realm of customer care. And this is just the way government bureaucracy works. And so I talked to my friend. I said, get her out of the, get her out of rehab and we're taking care of her at home. And she's doing amazing. And I'm thinking to myself, I am so frustrated. Like I do one case, the standard way that you're forced to do now at the government setting with the government bureaucracy at the hospital, forcing me to send them to the government run rehab. So when I say government run, it's because these people are Medicare patients and Medicare is wholly controlled by the government. And I cannot even just suck it up for one case and get this patient cared for and home without just a complete collapse. And I'm saying to myself, folks, we have got to start changing the way that we function in this world because this is not just medicine, right? There's a war on meritocracy out there, right? The government is wanting to take over everything. And when the government takes over things, they destroy it. Now, one of the things that I've been trying to focus on this show a lot is is this idea of why do we think what we think, right? So uh, a common situation will come up is like Trump's a loser, even in my own family. I can't stand Trump. I hate him. And I'll say to myself, or I'll ask this person who's, you know, says Trump's a loser. I hate him. Like, okay, why? And they'll say, you know, everything. And I'm like, okay, well, I don't want to know everything. Just give me one reason why you hate him. And vast majority of the time they can't, they don't know. That's just, they just hear it all the time. And this is a ploy that they use. This is, we're constantly being bombarded with points of view. And so when when somebody says, I hate Trump, it's like, how could you not if you're just a casual observer of politics? Because every single thing that is ever said about the guy anywhere is negative, right? Because the media tends to be left wing, right? I, I hope that we can agree on that. I mean, I don't think that's breaking news here. The media is left wing. The government is, uh, you know, the bureaucracies are run by the left, 
because people from the right don't tend to want to live in a bureaucracy like me. I don't want to do government medicine. I want to do private medicine because I loathe the bureaucracy and because I know the bureaucracy is soulless and it's got no, no, no compassion for people. It's a very, um, draconian type experience. So there's the idea that we think the way we think and we need to start understanding that the experts are a mechanism to control what we think, right? You're not allowed to ask questions. You're not allowed to use your own um, opinion or your own research anymore, right? You have to be an expert in order to know anything, right? We saw Katanji Brown-Jackson when she was getting confirmed for the United States Supreme Court and she was asked to define a woman and she said, well, I'm not a biologist. I can't say what a woman is. I mean, this is how insane the world has gotten. So I'm watching Jack Ryan, the TV show Jack Ryan, and it's pretty good. I got to admit. But there is left-wing propaganda in there, as there is in just about every single thing we watch. And so there's a, a season where Jack Ryan has to go with Greer down to Venezuela and there's some corruption going on there. And, you know, it's a, it's a good show. I'm still, I'm on the last episode, but in the beginning of the episode, we got our, our main character, Jack Ryan, who's the CIA agent and he's teaching at a, a, a university and he's talking about Venezuela. They're setting the stage for Venezuela and they talk about the fact that Venezuela is this, you know, rich in minerals country that had a lot of oil and was doing well. And then, you know, what happened to this country that it went down the tubes? And he starts going, well, the problem was that a white nationalist <laughs> got control of the country and that's what did it. And then he starts talking about the current president is a nationalist, right? They always focus on nationalists, right? When they talk about Nazis, they'll talk about the fact that they were nationalists, right? That they were proud of their country, that they wave flags, as if that's the negative part of the, the Nazi party, right? It's not the, it's the nationalist part. Like, because people like me, right? When, when the, when the AJC described me, they said their Dr. Barber sits with an American flag, uh, hanging behind him, right? Because the the left is trying to create this narrative that anybody who's a patriot or that loves their country is somehow a flag-waving nationalist like a Nazi. But sentient beings, people with critical thinking skills, understand that the nationalist part was not the dangerous part of the Nazis. It was the socialism part. It was the government controlling everything part that let it down the terrible path that the Nazi party went. And so here you have our character, Jack Ryan, talking about the fact that Venezuela went down the tubes because the the leader was a nationalist, okay? Now, I'm here to tell you, this is one of the things that chaffs my hide more than anything in terms of my realization about the psyop that us people, that we the people are going through since the beginning of time. We're always being conditioned to believe certain things with the use of experts and what we see on TV. Now, if you're old enough to remember, Hugo Chavez was elected as a socialist leader of Venezuela. And at the time before Hugo Chavez was elected, I want to say Venezuela was the second wealthiest country in the Western Hemisphere, that they were uh, had massive oil production, they have massive minerals, they have a lot of to offer and a lot to uh 
create a wealthy society and they were doing fantastic. And then you had Hugo Chavez coming in advocating socialism. He called it democratic socialism. And for you young people out there, all democratic socialism means is it's the first time you vote because you only get to vote once for socialism. And then after that, it's mandatory. But the thing that enrages me is Hugo Chavez was running for the president of Venezuela and all of the Hollywood elite, Sean Penn, Danny Glover, talking about how great Hugo Chavez was, how amazing he was. The leftist media talking about how amazing he was. I remember I was a younger person. I was just like, are you freaking kidding me? This guy is a socialist. And so Hugo Chavez gets elected. And of course, that was the last election. Now we got Maduro, who's basically just the next guy, the next totalitarian tyrant. And what happened to Venezuela is what always happens when you have a socialist regime is that you have the government control of the means of production. They took over the oil company. They took over healthcare. They took over medicine. And what happened to Venezuela? It became destitute. It became so poor. These people are starving in the streets. They're killing flamingos to try and feed themselves. They have no toilet paper. They have bread lines. They have what happens to every single socialist society in the history of the world. And it's all because Hugo Chavez, the darling of the left in this country, got elected and ran that country down the toilet. And now fast forward several years, I got to watch Jack Ryan talking about, yeah, the reason that Venezuela went down the toilet was because they elected a nationalist. Man, if that doesn't show you just the propaganda in the memory holding that these people on the left do. Now, when you look at the Maui fires, okay, I grew up in Hawaii. So I'm here to tell you, I, I grew up my whole life just about in Hawaii. I don't ever remember there being like a big fire, like ever. So the idea that Hawaii suffers from these big wildfires in the way that California does or some of the other, it, it's not true. It doesn't happen. And I'm not really interested in getting into the uh, Maui situation, but I'm here to tell you that my first instinct as an educated man, as a somewhat experienced person, uh, was this fire engulfed this entire city uh, in large part due to the failure of the government bureaucracy, the government bureaucracy that runs the water systems, that runs the the safety and the fire uh, fire uh, um, fighting system, that the government bureaucracy that spends tons of money on green energy projects, which is just a scam, right? They confiscate taxpayer dollars and they divert it to these green energy programs. A lot of them then give kickbacks to these government officials that promote it. And I guarantee you these green energy scams diverted funds that could have been used to uh, protect this area of Lahaina from these out-of-control fires. We know that there's this grass that's not indigenous to Hawaii that was a fire hazard. There were these open power lines that the Hawaiian Electric Company was uh, tasked with uh, dealing with, and they never did. And we, you know, I'm guaranteed, you know, I'm not, in my opinion, we're going to find out when we study this thing that a lot of what happened with this fire in Lahaina had to do with uh, the failures of government. Now, there was a guy that was in charge of releasing the water during the fires, and he's since resigned his position. He's, of course, like all government employees, he's not going to uh, lose his job. He's just being reassigned, and he'll fail upward, right, despite the fact that he was a complete joke. His name was M. Kaleo Manuel, and he delayed the release of water to this raging fire for five hours. 
This person has a degree in Hawaiian studies, and this is where I talk about beware of the experts. So this guy is in charge of the water management in Hawaii, and I want you to hear, we we know that this is one of the worst wildfires in American history with massive death tolls. And by the way, if you're old enough to remember Hurricane Katrina, where the media was there covering every square inch of it, and we know that... People like Brian Williams, who was a big-time talking head at the time when they couldn't find enough devastation to blame on George Bush, who I'm no fan of, but they went the left went nuts trying to blame Katrina and the response to Katrina on George Bush, that they made fake bodies floating in the water, and this is how he ended up losing his job uh, by pretending that there were dead bodies. They go and they make this stuff up, but isn't it funny how with the Maui fires, there's nothing. Right. Joe Biden sitting on the beach. He's asked about it. And what does he say? No comment. Are you kidding me? One of the worst disasters in American history with many deaths, a lot of them children. And his response is no comment. And where's the media to berate him? I guarantee you, if that was Trump sitting on the beach, that would be a whole different response. But I want you to listen to this guy. He's being asked about his handling of the water supply Understandably, you got to understand in the wake of uh, maybe even upwards of a thousand people dead, all right, homeless, the whole place wiped out a lot of these children. Listen to how this guy responds to the question. Commission is responsible per, per our authorizing statute to protect and manage all water resources in the state. One water is like taking it and looking at it from a holistic system perspective. You know, and in essence, we treated a, a native Hawaiians treated water as one of the earthy manifestations of a god in a kua kane. We've become used to looking at water as like something which we use and not necessarily something w- that we revere as that thing that gives us life, right? I mean, to me, it's a shift in value set. So really, my motto is always like, let water connect us and not divide us. Like we we can share it, but it requires true conversations about equity. Yeah, that's just a bunch. Of- I, I, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? I, I can't even stand it. I mean, this is just you know just unbelievable uh, that the guy in charge of releasing the water in this horrible disaster is making a comment about equity. And about, uh, you know, water is something to be revered and not used. Are you kidding me, people? And this is the thing. This guy is not an isolated case. This is what is happening to all of our institutions, whether it be medicine, our energy system. The government is just wholly incapable of running our lives. And, you know, the idea that we're going to allow uh, the FDA Right. These institutions, the World Health Organization to manage our health care is utterly ridiculous. And it's not just that they can't do it. They won't do it. All right. I mean, when we look at the response in Maui, if the, the failure for the alarms to go off, the waters, you know, the water being blocked, you know, you can't use water to put the fires out. The people trying to leave Lahaina, the, a lot of the exits were blocked by the police. Right. And we know a lot of the survivors were people who ignored the police blockade and went around it. Um, we know that there were these fire hazards ignored by the Hawaiian Electric Company. And you got these people that in the face of this horrible tragedy are blaming climate change. I mean, 
people. We talk about it on this show all the time about the scam on climate change. Now, I'm, I, I want to make connections here because my, my focus here is to get you guys to understand how to think and how to process the information in the world around us because we live in a very different world today than we did when I was a kid. And we are all potential victims of this propaganda. And it's almost like people in control, people with power, our elites are engaging in a constant psyop to get us to believe things that aren't true, right? Like we're involved in a horrible pandemic. And so we have to have mass mail-in balloting, right? And everybody put their mask on. Now, we have already heard that there are some schools that are starting to mandate masks again. That, uh, that, you know, we just came out of this COVID, uh, pandemic and we've, the, the powers that be are allowing us to say the truth. We just, we've talked about it on this show. The Cochrane Library Review did a meta analysis on masks and demonstrated that they do not work to prevent the transmission of respiratory illnesses, right? That just came out and I know it just came out. Because I'm the, I keep posting it on this show. Like I finally am able to say this, right? Because when I was saying it uh, before the COVID pandemic, because we knew that masks didn't work before the COVID pandemic, of course the AJC had to come out with a huge front page article on the same day that the Braves won the World Series to berate me and Hal for s- spreading misinformation. And then it's so ironic that as we go back and we look at the information we were talking about on this show, that we were a hundred percent correct. I don't see any apology from the AJC, right? And the part that's even more perplexing is they're already back at it. I mean, they're already talking about the vaccines and the masks. Uh, and um, if you guys will remember, we were talking on this show about early treatment. I've per, uh, specifically ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine, which were uh, – early treatment um, proven drugs that were very safe. And we've talked about it on this show a lot that the the people in power made a concerted effort to throw a wet blanket on early treatment because if early hit treatment had been available, that would have prevented the emergency use authorizations for the vaccines. And of course, if people were not getting sick and going to the hospital all the time, that would have eliminated the uh, ability to implement mass mail-in balloting during the election. And so the, um, uh, you know, there was this effort to, to prevent the use of ivermectin. Okay. Now I can tell you that during the pandemic, I was studying like a doctor does, and I was reading lots of articles that demonstrated the efficacy of both hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin. And so I was rather perplexed at the time when the New England Journal of Medicine, for example, came out saying that hydroxychloroquine, one of the safest medicines of all time, was cardiotoxic. And I was like, how did this happen? Like, I know this is not true. And then two weeks later, the New England Journal of Medicine and The Lancet had to retract these stories against hydroxychloroquine when they were busted not using or busted using fake data. They completely made it up. And I've explained to you on this show a million times that there's no way that that got through the peer review process of these uh, uh, journals, right? They had to be in on it, okay? 
the data was made up and yet they still got published. Okay. Pharmacists in many cases were refusing to prescribe these medicines. I know for a fact because I was prescribing these medicines to patients and the pharmacies would reduce, would refuse to fill them. And I even called a couple of these pharmacists and I said to them, what's your name? What's your badge number? I'm writing it down. And if anything happens to my patient, I'll be, I'll be, I'll be talking to you. And that actually compelled some of these pharmacists to prescribe the, the medicine, which was legal to prescribe. And that's the thing. Talking about these experts protecting us, they won't do it. Once a drug is FDA approved, as long as a doctor prescribes that medicine in the dose prescribed for the interval prescribed, uh, and for the duration, that it's approved for, it doesn't matter the indication. The indication is between the doctor and the patient, okay? We use upwards of 40% of drugs are used for an indication other than the one they were intended for. So if a medicine drops blood pressure and it was meant to be for, you know, diarrhea, but we find that it drops your blood pressure and somebody has high blood pressure, we can give that medicine that was developed and approved for diarrhea, we can give it for uh, for the high blood pressure. That's the way this medicine works. And so both ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine were FDA approved drugs. Ivermectin having won the Nobel Prize in 2015 for humans. And yet the agencies, uh, went out of their way to sort of put a wet blanket on the use of it. Now, the FDA just recently admitted that ivermectin is uh, a useful medication or is, is allowed to be prescribed by doctors for the treatment of COVID. And I want you guys uh, to hear about this. This is um, Dr. Pierre Corey, and he wrote a book called The War on Ivermectin. I want you to hear what he has to say about this. I believe I got this from the Charlie Kirk show. So hat, hat tip to Charlie Kirk. Charlie, finally we got him a little bit, right? So that court case last week, the FDA lawyer looked like a fool. I mean, you could see them backtracking. We, we, we knew what they were doing the whole time. And now they have to admit it, right? They're, they're, they're sheepishly admitting that their guidance were just quips. That's literally what they said. Oh, we were just quipping, right? Which is a, a kind of a humorous phrase or a witty, a witty phrase. That's not what we pay the FDA to do. And they clearly were intervening in the practice of medicine, which they have no authority to do. Um, and, and we also know it's beyond the FDA. It's literally the synchronized coordination of all three agencies to suppress early treatment. And, and I appreciate what you just said. You know, you, you, you described it as evil and millions of lives lost. Those are both true statements. The challenge that I have is the individual people who are part of that, who work in those agencies and are doing those actions, I don't know that they individually understand what impacts their actions are having. But but this is a massive story. I mean, the FDA finally admits something that we already knew, which is that off-label prescribing is legal, not only legal, but it's championed by the FDA. They want us to use off-label drugs because we know there's a lot of diseases in which already approved drugs are effective and we should be using them as physicians to help our patients. And and now the truth comes out after after two years of just disinformation and oh, propaganda. Against it. So that's the most important thing, and that's the real reason that I'm playing this, is I want you guys to know for the next time, Right. Because these clowns are likely to try this kind of crap again, that your doctor is allowed to prescribe medicines off label. Right. An FDA approved medicine 
can be prescribed by a doctor. And for you pharmacists out there that felt like you had an obligation to interfere between doctors and patients, that's not how this works, okay? So, you know, right now we have a little, we have a little, uh, window where apparently we can have a little free speech to kind of share information, but you guys have got to learn how to process information. You have to beware of these so-called experts. Okay. And you know, we all, I do it all the time too. Like I think to myself, why do I think what I think? Right. I watch the news. I read the paper. You know, nowadays we see, you know, social media posts and things like that. And I'm always asking myself, is, is this possible to be true? You know, I, I know, for example, when somebody says misinformation, I immediately go, okay, it's probably true. Right. That's what the left does is they try to label you as misinformation. For example, the Atlanta Journal Constitution with me and Hal during the pandemic came out with a front page article, said the two of them are spreading misinformation. Right. That was a clue that we're spreading actual information. Right. We know that when somebody says, well, you're not an expert, I, I can't say what a woman is. Uh, I, I'm not a biologist. That is a red flag. If you see a fact checker being deployed, there's no reason for a fact checker. When I was young, there was no such thing as fact checkers. We had open debate and people processed information for their, for themselves. And not only that, but we were taught to. When I went to school, I was taught that you don't just believe something because it's in a book, right? I was taught that everything has bias, right? I've shared it on this show all the time. Not all of this stuff is nefarious, right? Not everything that is done is evil intended. But you can never cede important decision-making powers to another person thinking that they're going to act in your own best interest because they won't. I've used the example many times when I was working as a fitness trainer when I got out of college. My friend, she she had me go to the the, the uh, bakery next door to get a muffin. And I took, you know, I got the muffin. I got a coffee. I came back and I split the muffin in half. I broke it, the top off and the bottom. The bottom piece was bigger, but the top was the top. And guess what? I wanted the top. So I took the top and I gave her the bottom, thinking that I was giving her the better deal because I gave her the bigger piece. And she looks at me and she goes, what are you doing? I said, what? And she goes, why are you giving me the bottom? And I said, I gave you the bigger piece. She goes, I I said, I wanted the top. And she goes, everybody wants the top. Like, that's what people like in muffins. And I, I think about it all the time because I genuinely was not trying to get over from her. I wasn't trying to steal from her. I wasn't trying to do anything. My brain just told me, Scott, you want the top. So take the top and give her the bottom piece. This is what surrogates do, right? They don't act in your best interest. So when you give authority to these other people, they're not going to act in your best interest, right? Hugo Chavez. Democratic socialism, just give us control. Danny Glover, Sean Penn, oh, Hugo Chavez is the best guy in the world. And now Venezuela goes down the toilet implementing just about every policy that Democrats in this country would sign on to. And now that Venezuela is starving in just a miserable hellscape, uh, we don't hear anything about it, right? They just, um, they just, they just, um, move on. Um, the, uh, did you guys know the police chief that uh, is in um, uh, uh, Lanai, uh, this this uh, Lahaina, I mean, uh, in in Maui? 
Did you know that this was the cop that was in charge of the Vegas shooting? Isn't that weird? I'm not saying there's any relationship there, but you guys probably don't remember the Vegas shooting because the the elites, the powers that be, they don't want you to know about the Vegas shooting. But that was a guy, you know, middle-aged, chubby white guy, got a bunch of machine guns, went into the Mandalay Bay Hotel, and then shot up all those people at the Jason Aldean show. It's weird how we don't know anything about it, right? If this supported some kind of left-wing narrative, you would know everything about it. Even they would make stuff up about it. But in this case, they, we didn't, we didn't learn much about it. They, they, they let it die on the vine, just like Maui is, right? I don't, I don't, I haven't really seen many pictures of it. I'm not getting a lot of information about it. I see a lot of stuff about their cordoning off Maui, so you can't fly drones over it and you can't go in there and see what's going on. It's kind of weird, right? And to me, that is also a clue. The things that they let you know and the things that they don't let you know and the understanding that in a bureaucracy, Right. People fail up. So this dude was the policeman in charge of that shooting of failure. And now he just happens to be the police chief uh, where this big fire happens in Lahaina. Just an interesting sidebar. Uh, but um, the the. Um, let's see. So going back to understanding like who you trust and who you don't trust, right, is one of the things you need to notice is when these experts lie to you, right? We just had these uh, during the last election series, we had these 51 intelligence, former intelligence officers. Uh, most of them show up on CNN and MS, MS, NBC all the time. And they said that the um, the Hunter Biden laptop was Russian disinformation and they signed a letter, which to me was weird. Like why would 51 people come out and say something like the Hunter laptop is disinformation? They were caught clearly trying to impact the election. And so me being a sentient being and being someone with common sense says to myself, like I'll never listen to any of these people ever again. James Clapper, you know, some of these clowns, these former intelligence guys that are clearly shills for left wing agendas. Um, you know, if you guys can remember back to Joe Rogan when he was sick with COVID and he talked about taking ivermectin and all that, and they almost shut down his podcast, right? He was the most popular podcast in the world, and they were going to shut him down. And he basically gave him all the middle finger, and he stayed on the air. And then CNN, he Joe Rogan, I remember, did a, a sort of a video selfie of himself talking about how he used early treatment and all of this kind of stuff. And then CNN sort of doctored the image to make him look yellow and sickly, right? Rolling Stone did a fake story on ivermectin saying that people were getting poisoned by this horse dewormer and having to go to the hospital and that people with gunshot wounds weren't getting treated because the doctors were so distracted by the wave of ivermectin poisoned people coming in. It turned out to be a totally fake story, but it went around the horn reported on by MSNBC, CBS, ABC, NBC, CNN, all the usual suspects, the Washington post, they all got in on it. And then when it was found to be a hoax, like nothing, like where was the FDA uh, getting it, um, getting it, uh, uh, fixed. Now, I want you to hear this last thing on the way out. Uh, Victor Davis Hansen, uh, talking about, um, how Stanford University 
is using diversity, equity, and inclusion to our disservice. Listen to this. Stanford University just announced the incoming class of 2026, and they boasted that there were only 23% white applicants in a demographic that has three times that number. But here's what was interesting. They would not tell you of the people who were admitted how many did or did not take the SAT, which is optional now. But they did want to emphasize that those that took the SAT and got a perfect, that's almost impossible to do, a perfect score on the SAT, they proudly announced they rejected 75% of them. And so it's almost a boast that we're not going to be bound by meritocracy. So I talked to some people off the record in Silicon Valley, and one person, if I were to name his name, everybody would know him. He said we would rather have a, a coder from Georgia Tech than we would from Stanford. So it's starting to affect us everywhere. And it's a war on meritocracy, and it's an equality of result, enforce mandate, and it's all done under the guise of being morally superior, but it's a very amoral system because it destroys the lives of people who play by the rules and try to achieve. So, folks, you got to understand this war on meritocracy, it is affecting you, right? The doctors that we have are less and less competent. The people that run our institutions are less and less competent. We need to start moving back towards freedom, right? That involves voting. We have to come out and we have to win this election. Healthcare is a major aspect of that. And so we have got to get away from this government socialized medicine construct and get toward more towards a free market medicine. Well, listen, this is what they're doing instead. I want you to hear Katanji Brown Jackson. This is just uh, uh, last week. Listen to this, if you can believe it. So Katanji Brown Jackson was up at the podium uh, spreading lies, <laughs> as she always does. She's already talking about the vaccine in September. Listen to this. The president said in, in Tahoe that he had tentatively decided to recommend everyone get the new vaccine. When is he going to decide so as you, I think you've heard from the F, uh, FDA and CDC, uh, they've made an announcement on the new vaccine. Uh, so certainly uh, they said that they will have an, there will be an updated vaccine September, mid-September, I believe. So uh, we know that, as you all know, vaccinations against COVID-19 remains the safest protection for avoiding hospitalization, long-term health outcomes, and death, which is why we are, we are going to be encouraging uh, Americans to stay up to date on their vaccine. I, I can't even believe it, folks, but there they go again with the vaccines are safe and effective, and we're still living through the consequences of the last one. Uh, we'll talk about next week. Peter McCullough just came out with a study. 74% of uh, autopsies revealed that their deaths were directly related to the vaccine. You're not seeing that anywhere from the CDC or the FDA, are you? All right, folks, we'll catch you next time. You're listening to Dr. Scott Barber on the Doctor's Lounge. This is America's Web Radio. Have a great week. The views, opinions, and content of the show hosts and their guests appearing on America's Web Radio are their own and do not necessarily reflect those of the station. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.